My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. We are so lucky to have Jeff Hobbs today on the Morning Meeting Podcast. Jeff grew up in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. He's the author of The Tourists, a national bestseller, um, and The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, which is a New York Times bestseller, notable book of the year, and winner of the LA Times Book Prize. It's an incredible book, one of my favorites. Today, we're going to be talking also about his new book called Show Them Your Good. It's his second work of nonfiction. Currently, he lives in L.A. with his wife and two children and was very willing to speak with me. I think it was 4.30 a.m. his time. Here's the interview. Thank you for joining us on the morning meeting. I um, I read The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace several years ago, and I was very excited when your new book came out, Show Them Your Good. Both of these books are about young adults. Uh, you know, The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace is partly your own experience, but I was first wondering what draws you to the stories of this age? Oh, it's a good question. And thank you so much for having me. I'm so uh, grateful to be here with you. Oh, you're uh, and uh, with Rob Peace, uh, The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, obviously he, he was my friend and a uh, a close friend during during school during, we were roommates for four years in college you know a fleeting time of life a formative time sure. um, and you know that book it's not like when he died I decided to write a book it was more a community of people that formed after he died, people from all over, and we just uh, stayed in touch and saw each other when we could and did the thing you do when you try to celebrate people, which is tell stories. And, and so I call the book kind of a eulogy that got out of hand. <laughs> and, you know, it was a, it was a meaningful work. It was a difficult for a lot of reasons, um, especially after it was published and actually a few people read it, which I didn't really expect. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it was nice, but it, it was special, but it was hard mainly because I missed my friend. So as to your question, I think maybe that's what sort of started drawing me back toward that time of life, that coming of age. Mm-hmm which for me was unremarkable. Um, so I'm definitely not trying to live vicariously through anybody. And then as far as the new book, Show Them You're Good, um, when Rob Peace was published, uh, something very terrifying happened, which was that a lot of schools started reaching out and asking me to come and talk. Um, and you can probably already tell I was never meant to speak in public or speak in general, really. Um, but they wanted me to, you know, come if I could get there 
do an assembly maybe or just visit some classes or even just Skype into an English class or something, schools uh, all over the country and, um, you know, the Ivy League and juvenile halls and uh, lots of spaces in between. Mostly, I would say, you know, inner city public high schools. Mm -hmm. And I went and it was a privilege to, to go when I could. And what I found, I mean, I was there to facilitate conversations about race and and class and access and entitlement and, and all these pretty big things. But what I found was that something about Rob Peace and his story and his character uh, somehow compelled or even empowered young people to start to share their own stories, mm-hmm. uh, just little intimate fragments even in different ways um and it's really powerful to see young people particularly young men stand up and say you know this is who i am now tell me who you are Mm -hmm. um and i you know i just i did these visits and i carried them home and uh started thinking maybe there's a way to do a project write a book about what it looks like and feels like to be 17 and 18 years old in America mm-hmm. right now yep. uh, without hanging it on, you know, a sports team or, you know, a parenting style or a device, say, just kind of be with some, be with some students and uh, tell their stories. Mm-hmm. I was actually, I have a a senior in high school at the moment, and I was just thinking as I read the book, how did you get them, these boys, to open up the way that they did? I mean, to share so much of their lives with you, I oh. thought was incredible. Oh, thanks. Well, I brought food. <laughs> food helps. Uh, lots of food. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, No, I went to these schools. It was a high school in South L.A. called uh, Animo Pat Brown High School, um, a smallish charter high school. Um, about 600 kids, 9 to 12, and Beverly Hills High School, which most people, at least people who watch TV in the 90s, uh, <laughs> um, you know, know or think they know right? sort of w- what, what that place is like. And um, for whatever reason, the schools decided it was okay to sort of let me wander around. They trusted me mm-hmm. um, to maybe try to do something positive. But uh, so I had these small groups of students in each school, about four or five guys in Beverly Hills. It was seven actually. And I I went to classes. I went to dances and plays and uh, I mean, you name it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't go to like off campus sort of weekend house parties (laughs) uh, because I didn't, well, I was invited, but (laughs) Um, but, uh, but the meat of the work of the storytelling was just, these guys would gather with me in a classroom after school, usually once a week mm-hmm. for usually about two hours, sometimes three, a couple times, even four hours we sat, uh, and maybe I'd come in with some prompts about current events or, where they were in the college admission cycle. These were mm-hmm. senior boys, but um, 
mostly they just, I didn't really need the prompts. They, really? they just seemed happy to have a space to be together and talk about what was going on. And a lot of it was utter nonsense, mm-hmm. um, which was entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it was pretty heavy. Um, and I don't want to say therapeutic, but mm-hmm. I will say I don't think it was just the food that they right. came for. I think they, I don't know, really seemed to get something out of the the witness that they gave each other. Mm-hmm. I um, do feel like, you know, I I would actually say it might have been therapeutic. It might it's not therapy, but it may have been therapeutic for them to be able to share their story with others. I mean, maybe. Uh, yeah. And in the meantime, I'm kind of an awkward guy, as I said. So uh, I think maybe that even helps sometimes that, you know, I wasn't sitting there grilling them with with big questions. Sure. And so, you know, it seems like a pretty easy place for them to be. Again, even when, uh, you know, some of those guys were uh, unpacking some some pretty heavy life circumstances and, and emotional courses they were going through things that, you know, they probably wouldn't talk about during the course of a normal school day or, or even in the evenings with their parents. Right. Well, that's, I guess where you got the title from, right? They want people to think that they're good. So. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a, a boy named Tio. Right. I remember. Just a, a great, boy and he was talking about skateboarding mm-hmm. which uh he was at the animo pep brown i'll call it apb okay um which is in south la just north of compton and most of the students there live in Com- compton mm-hmm. and yeah tio was talking about skateboarding which is mostly what he ever talks about <laughs> that and uh, arguments he was having with his girlfriend um <laughs> And he just said, when you go to a skate park, uh, the guys who are there give you a hard time, basically, until you show them you're good. Mm-hmm. But it, it it seemed to apply to college stuff they were going through. And, and just, again, being a, not just being a young person, but being a person where, again, no matter what's happening on the home front or inside uh, I think it's pretty typical that we're always trying to pro- project the most put-together version of ourselves. And that was a big struggle Rob Peace had. Just, yep. That was his mantra. I'm all good. It's all mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about me. And, uh, and you know, you believed him when he said it. Yeah. That's what his uncle actually, that was his, like, biggest message was, I should have asked him. I never, you know, he made us think that he's good. And I never thought to ask, like, are you really good? Yeah. Yeah. Again, it, that that's hard to yeah. go back to. But, um, you know, so with the two-sided title, it, it's part of the wonder of being a kid is is showing that and proving that you're good. But, uh, you know, there's an illusory aspect to it as well. Absolutely. So much of what these kids were talking about as they were preparing for college and even, you know, in that blog, when you talk about when they left was so much grief and about so many different things, you know, there was uh, one death at the end of the book, but 
so much of that before that was just so much other grief. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the the grief that they experienced over different issues that were going on in their own lives? Uh, sure. And there's so many layers to it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and so many different levels. And I mean, I can tell uh, some pretty powerful anecdotes that these guys shared, which again, I, I don't know if they would have shared in a a different kind of space, but I mean, I'm thinking of uh, Owen, who's a student in Beverly Hills, who, you know, his parents were very successful, are still mm-hmm. successful Hollywood creatives, about as successful as you can really be. And so he's that kid in Beverly Hills, very privileged. Yep. And he's just, he's a good kid. He's trying to figure out how to be a decent person in America. And, you know, he's having serious thoughts, but he knows nobody's really going to take those thoughts seriously because he's a rich kid from Beverly Hills. Yeah. And a great storyteller, really funny. And I learned about, he started talking a few months after we'd started meeting uh, about his mom, who was bedridden since he was in eighth grade with a sort of a chronic illness that nobody could really figure out, maybe related to Lyme disease, um, and that he would go home and, um, you know, when other kids are off at the mall or whatever. I was surprised to learn kids still go loiter at the mall after school. <laughs> um, you know, he would go lie down with his mom and talk about his day and um, Tio, who I've I've already mentioned, dealt with his father's alcoholism his his sophomore year in high school, uh, which, you know, his father was a recovered alcoholic who relapsed really severely when Tio was in 10th grade which left Tio, not physically abusive, mm-hmm. but abusive in every other way, mm-hmm. uh, which left Tio kind of looking out for his mom and his little sisters, but never mentioning it at school. Because if you, you know, if you say that things are not normal at home, then kids at school start thinking you're not normal. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, everything he was going through at home started to feel normal and his grades tanked and um you know it ended with his father in jail but that was a full year of his life when he was 15 years old and something he never spoke about even to his friends his best friends and even today when he talks about it it's almost hauntingly casual just yeah that's something that happened But his dad recovered and he was proud of his dad. But then when he was applying to college, he had to deal with this crater in his in his transcript of Mm -hmm. his sophomore year in high school. That is hard to explain to strangers like, yeah, my dad uh, messed up that year and I couldn't handle it. Yeah. So, you know, you carry grief emotionally, but it 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 also sort of affects the the numbers in your life as well. Yeah the data that tells your story. Mm -hmm. So those are two examples. There's, 
There's many more. There are. You know, Tio is a great example also because he chose not to talk about that when he was applying to college. So there was a big gap in his education and, you know, his grades dropped and he didn't really explain it and then didn't get into some of the schools that he wanted to go to. So that grief really affected him, you know, long term. Yeah, that was powerful to to witness. And again, he did it all so casually. But yeah, it's that question millions of kids face a year, which is what am I going to write my college essay about the the 600 words that define who I am? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of absurd thing. Everything everybody has to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was aware that writing about his dad's illness and the way his dad overcame it and his family overcame it, you know, probably makes for a calculating person would say that makes for a pretty strong college essay, but he, uh, um, he didn't think he didn't want to revisit it. As you know, I was with these guys as they went through this six month long process of applying to college. It's a very bizarre act of storytelling. And one of the difficult things about it across the board for all these guys, Beverly Hills and um, APB, was how you're kind of crafting your own story. And then for some kids, for the first time in their lives, they're projecting it beyond, you know, the confines of their school um, and setting their story alongside, you know, in the UC University of California system, uh, hundreds of thousands of others for judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing you talked about was how once they started getting accepted or rejected to colleges and then when they left, there was so many of these kids sort of had this shared experience. Their you know lives had been so intertwined for so long. And then when they started thinking about, you know, I'm going to New York and you're going elsewhere or you're staying home, it created this space, you know, between them and it sort of changed who they are. And, and how did you get them to even think about that? Or did they think about the space that it's creating in the future as well as when it was happening? Um, oh, that's a good question. Yeah, so that's in the epilogue that that mm-hmm. the, there's a passage about that fading away, which I guess yeah. is a is a form of grief. And it, well, it first came, but I guess I was catching up with uh, Owen and Bennett from mm-hmm. Beverly Hills, um, maybe a year after they graduated or nine months, you know, I checked in on everybody pretty regularly um, after they graduated. These guys were about as close as male friends could be um, beginning in fourth or fifth grade to the point where, you know, their high school classmates assumed they were gay or at least made jokes about yeah. it. And um, they were close and they talked on the phone and said, I love you platonically. Um, and yeah, Bennett went to New York city and Owen went to rural Ohio for college. And Bennett was just reflecting that, you know, that they can still 
pick up the same conversation that they'd been having for over a decade at that point. Right. But that there was a little distance, a, a little disconnect because suddenly they were no longer having the same experiences. They had to catch each other up and that that was hard. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So I, once he kind of raised that, I, I guess I started uh, bringing that up with some of the other guys in the book um, and the APB guys. And yeah, they all sort of paused and, reflected that I guess it's sort of the loss at the end of this book is you go to school for you know, 12 or 14 years and you know we've talked about things happening at home no matter what's happening at home you kind of know what is going to happen every day at school between 8 a.m and 3 p.m um, even yeah. if a lot of it's not that exciting there's a security in that and then suddenly you're 18 years old and you don't know what, where you're going to be in six months and you don't know who you'll be with and you don't know how these friendships will carry on. You don't know how you're going to pay for it. And all those unknowns, I think, are the source of all the stress and the anxiety and erratic behavior that, you know, maybe teenagers can be well known for it's also the source of their wonder and their connections and then these friendships that that change but they hold it's the source of a lot of the things that you know you hope your kids will carry with them yeah this episode is brought to you by inner harbor providing grief support to students and those that support them Find us at www.inner-harbor.org. You also talk about, you know, immigration status, racism. Yes. And uh, it was a particularly heavy year with regards to that issue because this was the 2016 presidential election happened these guys yep. were seniors in high school and APB is, is essentially a hundred percent Latino students. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, we can talk about the election and how they experienced it. Uh, I worked pretty hard to not have this be a sort of a political book, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it was a huge kind of emotional the emotional crux of that year for these guys, I would say. And it was mm -hmm. the first year a lot of them could vote and all those things. But um, so one of the guys in my group, in our group at APB, uh, was named Carlos. And he was applying for deferred action for childhood arrivals at the same time that he was applying to Ivy League schools for college. Um, right. And again, it's not like I went to these schools and, you know, asked for specifications, you know, and you would never know any of this about Carlos sitting with him. Mm -hmm. um, he's very humble, um, very low key. I mean, it was a huge part of his life. His parents undocumented. He couldn't speak 
elementary school um, because he'd grown up to that point in a farming community, apple and pear pickers in Washington State. And so he was dealing with the paperwork and the threat and um, the just the words coming out of the presidential race uh, from, you know, from Donald Trump um, and sort of what those words signified as far as the national consciousness and, and just what America thought of kids who looked like them and came from where they come from. So he was sort of contending with all that and, He's smart and a lot of these things you can intellectualize in a way or, um, you know, even have a kind of sympathy for people who who are limited. But what he kept, it was sort of interesting, what he really fixated on was the way his friends would make jokes. I'm trying to think of some of the exact jokes about him being undocumented, like his very close friends. Yeah, um, like yeah. a kid's bike got stolen. And Luis said, you know, like Byron's bike got stolen faster than your papers. And uh, before prom, you know, a girl said, America's not taking you as a citizen because I'm taking you to prom. And, you know, very lighthearted things. And what teenagers do with realities that are troublesome or they don't understand is make jokes out of them. It's kind of a way to process. But I, throughout the year, that is what sort of stuck on Carlos the most. And he was always grumbling about it, which, uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I thought it was sort of powerful. Yeah. I think those, you know, what people call microaggressions are sometimes more painful than the big, you know, the big announcements, uh, you know, those are the things that you, you don't plan for. You can't, you, you don't expect them to happen. So mm. it can be very painful. So why do you think um, it's important to talk about these things? Like, how did, you know, why did you decide to do a book specifically about this? Why did you want people to know about this experience for kids? Oh, that, that's a good question. And, uh, yeah, my wife thought I'd lost my gourd. Decided to start spending all my time at these high schools. <laughs> and yeah, I'm not sure if anyone will read this book. But and I didn't really know the point of it. I mean, so when I was writing Rob Peace, Robert Peace's story, mm-hmm. I I didn't really know the point of it. And you know, people would ask me why are you doing this and it was easy to say, you know, he was my friend and, you know, his life meant a lot more than his death. And um, we're not defined by, um, you know, the worst decision we made and, you know, kind of uh, platitudes of some sort like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, you're, you're drawn to people and uh and i think we so the point sometimes doesn't really 
come up until a lot later. And with Rob, I think we already sort of touched on it. You have a guy who was a special guy, a kind man, um, a flawed man, a complicated man, but uh, a guy who was surrounded by, you know, dozens of people who would have done anything for him, just would have wanted nothing more than to just be there for him if he needed them um, to help him if they could. And he, the sort of tragedy in the title is that he wouldn't let them. Uh, And, you know, what does that mean when it comes to maleness? And yeah. And so with these kids, uh, it's a happier ending Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, was nice to work on that. But um, we already sort of touched on this idea of the unknowns and sort of the wonder of the unknowns. And, you know, I thought on one level, you can't really recreate that time in your life. Um, and as you get older and as these kids seem younger, it becomes easier and easier to just kind of ding them and pass your insecurities on to the younger generation and they don't work as hard and they're entitled. And so you can't recreate what that felt like, but I feel like you can retrieve it through Mm -hmm. storytelling and uh, remember that people are good. And then Mm -hmm. the other point of it uh, had to do with these, the words you hear in high school more than, any other words you probably hear in high school have to do with self-determination. You know, if you dream something, you can get it. If you, if you set your mind to something and you work hard, uh, you, you can get that thing, right? Um, it, you know, it's the center of every graduation speech I've ever heard. And, and I've heard a lot of graduation <laughs> speeches at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true. And, it's a powerful motivator, uh, but I think a lot of the stories I was hearing, you know, going back to the beginning of the interview when I was visiting high schools and these kids were sharing their stories had to do with the deceptiveness of that, that sort of national ethos of self-determination that lines are not straight and life is messy and... Mm-hmm. You know, what you want is not what you work for and what you've earned is not always going to be available to you. Um, and it happened to Tio and it, it happened to these guys in different ways. And it's the way people adapt. And some of these guys learn it at a way younger age than others. But we all learn it at some point in our life. And it's the way these guys adapt to that realization that they were not warned about in school that, and that's the other word you hear in high school, which is resilience. That's, that's the point as it stands in this moment. You wrote the book really for young adults to read. Uh, I think you wrote that in the preface that, you know, you're hoping that young adults read this book and you're happy when, you know, people my age read it as well. But 
what do you hope that they get out of it for, you know, from reading this? Oh, uh, very simple. I mean, obviously there's the disparity and, and there's inequality under, you know, in every corner, everywhere you look, but it's really, and this is what Rob Peace is also about, uh, which is that we all don't experience each moment in the same way. Um, mm-hmm. And simplest idea, and I think everybody knows it intuitively, but uh, I think it's kind of remarkable how easy it is to just forget that as we go through national moments and personal moments. We, you know, we're all the center of our own stories, but we we kind of forget that our stories are not the center of the world. And um, so I, I, I think the real value of nonfiction and I don't know what this particular kind of nonfiction is even called uh, immersion journalism, maybe. Um, I don't know. I think the value of that is, is just to reflect on, on that idea. We don't all experience Mm -hmm. everything the same way. Are you working on another project? Uh, I am. I've, I've been in a working, I've spent the last year or so uh, in a juvenile halls, a few different no. juvenile detention centers in, in a few different cities. Also writing about school and teenagers. So, <laughs> so you started with high schools and then decided to go into juvenile halls. Uh, okay. Yeah. Same, same age. <laughs> Basically, okay. very, very different circumstances. That's exciting. Yeah. So I always like to ask people, um, you know, especially now during this pandemic, how are you taking care of yourself? What do you do to recharge and rejuvenate? Oh, me? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm with the kids doing the school stuff all day. and uh, <laughs> That sounds rejuvenating. Uh, <laughs> well, we have our moments. Um, and I get up very early so I can do some work, Mm -hmm. Um, but I have, uh, you know, take lots of walks and, uh, keep in touch with people. Um, I do woodwork. I don't know. I go surfing. I just Mm. do little selfish things. Those those are important things. So you can take care of your kids. Uh, How about yourself? I mentioned my kids are a little older, so I uh, I put them to work, and they did some, we'll call it woodworking. Um, they built a patio outside in our backyard. So Oh, that's funny. Um, that's exactly what I did. Really? Yeah, I built like a, <laughs> like a floating deck. Yeah, it's great. So I, I try to get outside every single day and walk the dog and oh, cool. read. I do love reading. So. Oh, yeah, a lot of that. I mean, I'm sort <laughs> yeah. of uh, built for this sort of lifestyle. So, um, it suits me not to sound Mm -hmm. dispassionate, but, um, you know, I, I don't struggle with it. Maybe the way, uh, my wife does, for instance. Mm -hmm. Okay. The isolation is not so bad for you. Uh, it's kind of, uh, nice for me. Mm -hmm. There's a reason my job involves sitting by yourself and, uh, Well, I appreciate you spending so much time with me today. Thank you, Mandy. It's so kind of you to read about Rob and reach out and take this time. Um, I know it's a lot of effort and it means a lot. 
well, the feeling's mutual. I appreciate you spending your time with us. <laughs> Thanks. You can find Show Them Your Good at Amazon or at your local bookstores. Thanks again to Jeff Hobb for this interview and to Stephen Bluestein for audio production. Next week on The Morning Meeting, we'll be talking to David Levin, the Executive Director Emeritus and the Senior Consultant at End of Life Choices of New York. He tells us why it's important for young adults to complete advanced directives and explains how you can get them for free. So join us then. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.